Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public-good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. Well, I'm here at the seminary today with Aliyah Shimi. Ali is the executive director of Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, ecumenical interfaith organization in Tulsa. And I'm going to talk with her today about the work of the organization and then turn to one of her other identities, being a Muslim woman in Tulsa, acting on her faith in public life. Uh, Ali, uh, uh, full disclosure, is also a good friend of Phillips Theological Seminary and a true friend for all of us who work here and know her. Aliyah, welcome. I'm really glad you stopped in today. Thank you. Thank you. I can't appreciate you enough for the invitation. Anything I can do for Phillips, anything I can do for you, Gary. Um, I love to partner with all of our friends here. So Great. For those of our listeners who may not uh, know uh, what TMM is or where it came from, tell us a little bit about the history. Sure. So the history of TMM is pretty unique. In 1937, it was a Protestant organization. It was started as the downtown Tulsa Council of Churches. Up until 1961, it was a Protestant organization. In 1961, it was the first organization across the United States to become ecumenical and start working with our Catholic brothers and sisters. Which was Church of the Mad. That's right, Church mm-hmm. of Madeline. And so that was, you know, that sent ripples through the community, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, later on in the 70s, it started working with the Jewish community. In the late 80s, it started working with the Muslim community. And then in the 2000s, it started working with other communities as well. TMM has this beautiful history in Tulsa of finding the gap where the community needs help. And they have come together as faith communities, Mm -hmm. whether it's to start the Tulsa Day Center for the Homeless, Youth Services of Tulsa, Meals on Wheels, Life Senior Services services for the Mm -hmm. Elderly, Mm -hmm. RSVP Retired Senior Volunteer Program. They had a hand with the Martin Luther King Parade that started here almost, you know, 30 plus years Mm ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty much everything that you can think of uh, with the Family Safety Center. We have a multi-faith chaplain who I'm very happy to announce that we have a Phillips grad who is our multi-faith chaplain over at Family Safety Center. She's advocating for the victims that come through at the Family Safety Center. Mm -hmm. So we've Mm -hmm. had a wonderful history of being able to – find those gaps and and help bridge those gaps as a faith community in Tulsa. One of the unfortunate things that happens is that organization like TMM, which had been a really go-to organization, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, because for anybody who knows Tulsa, the social service organizations you just named, they're all well-known, prominent, I think, overall healthy organizations uh, in this town. And they were all started by TMM. Absolutely. And I know that there was some debate in ecumenical interfaith circles some time ago about what you start and spin off. Mm -hmm. 
and what you hang on to in sure. part for identity. Sure. Uh, because I think the unfortunate thing is, is that most folks, uh, especially younger folks, wouldn't know Sure. Uh, that these these actually carry a TMM identity with them. Absolutely, absolutely. If I, I've had multiple people from all of these organizations, from some top leaders, recent leaders, who've reached out and who had no idea, no idea. that TMM had started these yeah. these organizations. And so they were yeah. wonderful standalones, which is great. But when you don't go through that legacy and that history, it gets lost. And so, unfortunately, that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned in its history that uh, who's been part of TMM has changed over time. Uh, yes, uh, right. When it was Council of Churches, you know, most Protestant Council of Churches started as a way uh, saying, you know, Catholics are, are, are they're all monolithic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to band together to make sure that Catholics can't participate in these things. And mm-hmm. along came Vatican II. And, and, and that upset that apple cart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was interesting that here in the hinterlands, Tulsa is, a, uh, like you said, was the first of the Protestant ecumenical organizations uh, that accepted a Roman Catholic congregation yes. as part of it. So diversities have changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in, in the present, who's, who's part of TMM now? And kind of how would you describe TMM's uh, current state. Sure. So in the present, uh, I know that in the past we didn't have Churches of Christ that were active um, within TMM. So within the past few years, we have had at least three Churches of Christ who have been very active with Hmm. Tulsa Metropolitan Hmm. Ministry. Um, Memorial Drive Church of Christ, Journey in the Park, and we've been working with them on different projects um, with Run to the Well. In fact, we had an interfaith trip where we went with the Church of Christ to Uganda this past summer. And so we got to see the work in action after we participated in the Run to the well and to be able to go into a community in these villages where they're building water wells um, and teaching them how to build stoves where they go into communities where they're Muslims and Christians and Aboriginals Hmm. and they have to learn to work together to be able to make this happen and Mm -hmm. so for Unitarians Muslims and Church of Christ members to fly to Uganda you know that this was a TMM trip that we took this summer you know it was it was very different so in the past we didn't have that and so when I mentioned to certain leaders here in the community that were working with the Church of Christ and you know they're baffled and they take uh-huh. a step back and they look at me they say you know they don't even work with us how in the world are they working with a Muslim woman you know and so and it just goes to show you how we can build these bridges and work together for the common and for, for common instance good. without necessarily naming names so how did that sure. kind of bridge happen because that is not the kind of bridge one thinks of in such a highly polarized sure. day, especially sure. between you know right and left, and Absolutely. one kind of Christian and everybody else. Sure, and- I, I think what happened, and you know, this is you know during the election year in 2016, we were becoming so polarized as a nation. Some people just couldn't take that, and you know, mm-hmm. they decided, you know, I'm going to reach out myself and start mm-hmm. learning and educating mm-hmm. myself. And one individual who's a dear friend, he reached out to me and to the Muslim community and wanted to learn a little bit more. We built a relationship, a wonderful friendship. Mm-hmm. That, and so we started um, having lunch, having conversations. From there, he invited us into his congregation. Um, we started having small group discussion in his congregation. Then we started, uh, we brought Dr. William Tabernay, mm-hmm. uh, Imam mm-hmm. Chasi, mm-hmm. and Dr. Charles Kimball mm-hmm. to speak at their church. And they got to ask all the questions they wanted about the Muslim faith. And, you know, from there, we started doing projects and having dinners together. And so little by little, this is how we built 
this bridge, this bond. And um, from there, it went on to some of these other churches that I named earlier. And, you know, they had a tragedy um, over the summer. Their church burnt down. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we reached out to them immediately. Whatever we could do, we were able to find them a replacement house of worship while they're going through the building process. Over at Eastside Christian. Yes, over at Mm -hmm. Eastside Christian, which, you know, of course, has been a supporter for decades. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's just it's just being there for your brother or sister. It's building those bonds. Because we became so polarized and people just couldn't take it, that's what kind of was the catalyst mm-hmm. that got us going. But in what you said, I also heard a story of an individual taking initiative. Absolutely. And stepping out of the what, whatever a party line mm-hmm. would have been. I mm-hmm. like when, you know, Brene Brown talks about braving the wilderness and that's part of what she means by that is stepping out of that circle or that bubble that mm-hmm. we've been uh, that we ensconce ourselves in mm-hmm. um, and and so uh, that's wonderful that we have some of that bridge building going on that Absolutely. again is unexpected very unexpected within our african-american communities you know we're working with morning star baptist church we're working with vernon ame you know again they normally wouldn't look at you know, these pastors working with a covered Muslim woman in an interfaith organization. Those are some of our new members that we've brought in and to be able to work on projects together That's um, for the good of our community. Yes. So that, ha- that traditionally that has not been the case. Right. So where does TMM seem headed? What are the program initiatives that you're sure. you're been dreaming and envisioning? Sure. sure. So um, we've been working pretty diligently with community policing projects And um, a year and a half ago, we started doing dinners with our police cadets who are graduating, who are getting ready to graduate. So Mm -hmm. we have three academies now that go through the police academy. And I specifically select congregations where there might be a little bit of tension Mm -hmm. and where they might not necessarily um, know each other or have those bridges built prior. So, uh, as I mentioned, Morningstar Baptist Church was our very first one that we hosted. And we had the cadets and their family members, their children, their parents, their spouses who came. We had police leadership. And then we had the Morningstar community from their church who attended. We had a little over 187-plus people who were there. Wow. Uh, and we had this program worked out and, you know, everything ready to go. And then when we got there, you know, I did the welcome uh, Dr. Goss did the blessing of the meal, and then who was the, the chief, pastor of the church? Who was the pastor of the church? Mm. The, the deputy chief Daglish said a couple of words, and it was such a wonderful conversation that there was no need for programming. You know, everybody mm-hmm. split up. They had, you know, we had tables of community members and police officers and families, and by ten o'clock, we were having a difficult time trying to get people out of the church. Uh-huh. And so we were able to replicate that two more times this year. We just finished up class one sixteen, and that was over at Antioch Baptist Church. And so to be able to bring these officers together to build those bridges before they meet on the street where there's a high intensity um, face off or, you know, whenever they meet um, and just to know names, you know, these are the officers that are going to be policing our community. And so we should be working together to keep Tulsa safe. At the end of the day, we're all Tulsans. So that's been a project that we've been working on pretty diligently. Um, another project that we have been working on, kind of our capital campaign that we announced this year at our annual dinner, 
is um, a girls' home for sexually trafficked juveniles. A lot of people don't know that Tulsa happens to be a corridor, and we have a lot of underage girls who are being sexually trafficked. And um, unfortunately, we don't have a home for them. We have no place to put them, not here, not in Oklahoma City. We only have one facility in the entire state of Oklahoma that is DHS certified. And unfortunately, it only has eight beds. So we have these girls who are waiting in detention centers and different places before we can transfer them out of state to different facilities. So um, again, the faith communities have gotten together to help these victims. So we'll have a place to be able to put them. As, as far as treatment. So we'll have a crisis stabilization um, unit and then we'll, we'll be able to provide treatment for them as well. So that is the capital project that, that we are currently working on. And, and I want you to say a little bit more about that, if you would, sure. because I think a lot of people wouldn't realize when they, who aren't from Oklahoma sure. uh, about the, we got two major interstates that mm-hmm. run. 35 and 44. Yeah, mm-hmm. that run through Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And these are major human trafficking paths. Yes, absolutely. They're major human tra- trafficking paths. And a lot a lot of people, when you say human trafficking, the first thing that comes to mind is the movie Taken. They think mm-hmm. of some mm-hmm. foreign you know, organization that's coming in here, kidnapping the girls and taking them mm-hmm. to a different country and selling them on the net. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Majority of the trafficking that we are seeing here is familial. Almost 75% of it is familial. So it's either a mother, an uncle, a father, or a stepfather, or somebody who's trafficking. Um, a family member is trafficking these children. Um, and the average age that we're finding here in Tulsa is about 13. So for the state of Oklahoma, it's about 13 years old. Majority of these kids, um, if they were run away within 48 hours of running away, they're being approached by a trafficker. Hmm. And so these hmm. are statistics that people, you know, really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think, oh, this can't happen to us. You know, we live in a mm-hmm. better socioeconomic mm-hmm. neighborhood or mm-hmm. this and that and the other. And that couldn't be further from the truth. With the advent of social media, you know, once you take a couple of undesirable pictures, you know, they hold that over your head. And then very quickly, that escalates into threats against family members. And so, you know, it's very difficult to be able to to um, pinpoint what's going on. And the other issue that we're having is that our gangs now are turning more to trafficking, Mm -hmm. because it is a low risk and high profit. They only have to buy that youth once and they get to sell her over and over and over again and you know when a police officer stops them and they have a 14 year old in their car they can say oh that's my girlfriend's daughter or whatever unless if that child is screaming i'm a victim there's nothing a police officer can do about that however when that gang member is arrested and stopped or or stopped in a vehicle and they have drugs or weapon on them that's a different story you know immediately they'll be searched so this is high profit low risk for them so most of these gang members are turning to human trafficking and we've seen this over and over again with our massage parlors that have Mm. you know been being targeted Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. and so um unfortunately you know we we want to put our blinders on and we think oh no this can't be happening in tulsa it's very much so happening right under our noses wow and uh in terms of a uh, safe house in or safe houses in Mm -hmm. oklahoma i hear there's one there's only one, and it's in Idabel. Idabel, Oklahoma. It has eight beds, eight beds, which is always full, and that's the only DHS certified one. You know, these it has to be a DHS certified facility mm-hmm. to be able to place these children. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, you know, as they're coming through, and a lot of these children, they're not being identified as a trafficked victim at first. You know, they're being arrested for 
you know, either misdemeanors or felonies because they're stealing or they're traffickers making them do something or another. And as they're coming through the system, you know, people like Dr. Kathy LaFortune, who happens to serve on our board, she's the one that started identifying some of these victims. Hmm. After you peel back some of those layers and you get back Hmm. to the core, Hmm. um, they're polyvictimized, right? And so they've had a history of trauma in, in, in their life. And so once we're able to identify them, then what do you do? You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's no place for them. So they sit in a detention cell until we're able to transfer them out of state. And that's if everything is approved. You know, they'll wait six months, eight months, a year. And so we can't let this happen to our to our youth. We really need to step in and help them. It would sound like a detention cell is the last thing someone who has been victimized in numerous ways could possibly need. Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot even fathom the amount of trauma that that individual has endured to get to the point where they have gotten and then to continue to to traumatize them you mm-hmm. know and so um, we're hoping that within this year we'll be able to get our capital campaign going and hopefully start on the building of our project next year and the project then would involve what and it will be called Francine House and we are honored that judge Francine Doris Francine who has been an advocate for decades uh, in Tulsa for families and justice. It will be called Francine House, and that will be our phase one of our project. That will be the crisis stabilization unit. Um, We're hoping to have at least eight units where we'll be able to have eight girls, and then we'll also have a couple of contingency rooms depending on what other... um, you know, services we may require, but it will be a multidisciplinary team that will be working with these girls, everything from therapists to sane nurses to detectives. Uh, it will be a multidisciplinary project, and we'll be partnering with all of our agencies here in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Partnership is always best, whatever we can do to help these um, victims. And so that will be the f- that will be the first phase of the project. The second phase of the project will be a larger treatment facility where they will stay at least from 8 to 18 months to be able to go through treatment. And then once they graduate the program, we're helping to be able to equip them to thrive as citizens in Tulsa. Wow. Well, it sounds like a, a wonderful project and way more need than there will be capacity even with uh, – even Absolutely. with this project uh, uh, coming to fruition. Ab- Absolutely. We wish that wasn't the case. I know. But, you know, I know. Uh, unfortunately, with everything that's going on that we see, uh, it's it's just um, if we could reduce that demand, you yes. know, unfortunately, that would uh, that that would help us tremendously. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Yeah. Good. I'm well, glad to know about what TMM has on the horizon. Uh, sounds wonderful. If I have my history right, you're not the first woman to head TMM. That probably was Sister Sylvia. Uh, um, yes. who, who did for many, many years. Yes. Um, and first first I knew TMM when, uh, with mm-hmm. Sister Sylvia. But you're probably the first non-Christian to hold the uh, office of executive director. I believe uh, so. That be, uh, I that believe would be so. Correct? As far as female, yes. Female first Muslim, yes. I want to talk to you some now about uh, you as a Muslim woman sure. um, acting on your faith in public, which mm-hmm. you are very well known for oh, here. thank you. So did you grow up in Tulsa or did your journey begin elsewhere? No, I was born and raised right here in Tulsa. In fact, I was the first of my family to be born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My parents immigrated from Germany. Um, my parents are of Turkish descent with my okay. older brother, okay. my, my aunts, my grandmother. They hopped on the Queen Elizabeth II from Germany and they landed in New York. They bought a Winnebago. They drove to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And they have been here ever since 1975. July 4th, 1975 is when they landed in New York. 
And huh. um, and I was born here July 11th, 1977 in Hillcrest Hospital. Okay. So the first one of my family to be Tolson. Went to school here, graduated from Union High School, um, married. I have two girls, three boys. I'm a grandmother and, um, you know, have loved living in Tulsa. And have always worked in the interfaith community as far as volunteering mm-hmm. for different organizations mm-hmm. like OCCJ mm-hmm. and TMM mm-hmm. and the Interfaith Alliance. Mm-hmm. I just love having conversations and being able to build those bridges. I taught for a number of years at TCC and at NSU as a professor, mm-hmm. but I always came back to doing these interfaith projects and, and, and you know, building these bridges. And I want to come back to that in just sure. a moment. So, okay, you were raised Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you a question now that I've I've been asked in the sense of race. Mm-hmm. When did you first realize you were white, or when did you first sure. realize you were black? So when did you first realize you were Muslim, and that being Muslim meant you were different from the norm uh, in Tulsa? Um, well, that's a very unique question for me because I wasn't identifiably Muslim up until 2004. Okay. So let me explain that a little yeah. bit. As a Muslim woman, uh, born and raised, practiced loosely. But if you looked at me, I wasn't covered. Uh, you know, I did martial arts. You know, I modeled. I did all these different things. And so if mm. you saw me on the street, there's no way that you – it doesn't say Muslim on my forehead. Mm-hmm. So you would have never guessed that I was a Muslim. I speak Englishly fairly well, even though it's my second language, you know. And so I don't have a little bit of an Oklahoma twang. But, you know, uh, you know, so nobody really pegged me as something other than a Tulsan. Uh-huh. Most people assumed I was Christian probably, but that never really – you know, was questioned unless if they asked me directly. Right. And then I would say, oh, yeah, I'm Muslim, you know, and that would be that to that. However, in 2004, when I started wearing the hijab, the, the head covering, very different. In 1995, when we had the Oklahoma City bombing, I know, uh, I'm sure if you've spoken to Imam Manchasi, um, he was John Doe number one and John Doe number two. Uh, very quickly, the Muslim community was looked at mm-hmm. uh, as they thought that, you know, the Muslims, um, you know, attacked Oklahoma City, the Murrah building, and, mm-hmm. and, and caused that terrorist yep. attack. And so that sent a little bit of unsettling feelings mm-hmm. in our community. But, you know, overall, it was okay. Uh, you know, we had Desert Storm and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so very much so patriotic. And, you know, we need to take care of these people who are oppressing others. You know, I, I had always felt that way. And then 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. Um, very much so in our community, we were praying that it wasn't, you know, Muslims who perpetrated this attack. Unfortunately, that was not the case. You know, that's what happened. And so... Very quickly, um, you know, we started seeing acts of violence against mm-hmm. the Muslim community here in Tulsa. Um, my mother, who covered at the time, she went into Sam's on 71st and Mingo, and my father was sitting in the parking lot. And um, she's a little frail, little elderly woman. Some big burly guy slammed her to the floor <gasps> in Sam's and started cursing and screaming at her. And mm-hmm. everybody just stood by and watched as this happened. She just left everything, ran out of Sam's, and got in the car. My father is not a confrontational man either, a little elderly man. Went home, and my mom refused to leave the house for almost three months. She was petrified. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was my first real personal experience Mm -hmm. of racism or discrimination. Mm -hmm. Right about that time, we had purchased some land in our neighborhood, And we were getting ready to build a house. And our neighbor, who was across the street, would always wave to my husband and I when we came. When he saw my mom come to the piece of land, the wave stopped. The smile stopped. Not even a week after, 
he had petitioned the neighborhood association to stop us from building our house. Mm-hmm. We came to a neighborhood meeting. There was a little over 350 people there. Mm. He had told people we were building a mosque. We were putting gold domes on our house that we were building a pyramid in the middle of a neighborhood, you know. And so he had all the neighbors riled up. So when we spoke with them and we showed them our blueprints, everybody apologized except for him. They let us listen to messages that he had left on their answering machines about what we were doing and we were terrorists and this and that and the other. A few weeks after that, uh, he started petitioning because our house was stucco instead of brick. And so at that point, we said, listen, we know what your issue is. There's nothing you can do about it unless if you show us a court order, if you step one more foot on our property, we're going to sue you for slander, discrimination, defamation of character, trespassing, so on and so forth. Needless to say, he sold his house and he moved away. But those were the first few mm-hmm. actions that I started seeing after 9-11. Mm-hmm. After I started covering, you know, that's when the personal attacks came, the physical attacks, the, you know, instances that I can go on and on and on and on about. However, mm-hmm. even though we had experienced all of this violence, the amount of love and the amount of um, compassion that the people in Tulsa showed us. Hmm. I cannot even begin to tell you. Hmm. Um, We had former military, current military members who were reaching out to us and saying, if you all don't feel comfortable, we will come and pick you up. We will take you grocery shopping. I still have a letter that was handwritten by my husband's manager who said, if you all do not feel safe in your home, please, by all means, come stay at our home. Hmm. And, I mean, I can tell you about these Mm -hmm. stories that go on and on and on and on. So, yes, we did face discrimination. Mm -hmm. Yes, we did see some hatred. But the amount of love and the compassion outweighed it tremendously. And so I would say that that was when I really felt that I was a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And before – I've always been an American. I've always been mm-hmm. proud to be an American. Mm-hmm. And this is the country that gives everybody equal rights, right? Mm-hmm. That's what our Constitution says. When we're at says. our best, yes. Yes, that's what our Constitution says, right? And so we all have these inalienable rights. And so I had never, ever questioned that up until that time. And then I still had people in the community who were, you know, um, who were immigrants who were still very much so afraid to leave their homes things were happening to them and i was still the person saying no 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 don't worry we'll take care of it i can't tell you on how many instances i've spoken to people in the community where acts of violence have happened against them and they refuse to report it they're afraid that mm-hmm. these people will come back and finish the job or mm-hmm. you know they don't want to make mm-hmm. a, a fuss they just want to be invisible mm-hmm. you know they just want to go on and live their life and you know when i do trainings and when i do seminars and things and when i give them the statistics of the muslims in in tulsa or in the state of oklahoma You know, did you know that there's over 20,000 Muslims in Tulsa? Nobody knows that. Mm -hmm. There's over 500 of them who are physicians alone, who are saving Mm -hmm. lives, literally saving lives every single day. Mm -hmm. But nobody asks that. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody asks what the Muslims are doing in the community. If you look at the crime rates, that's Mm -hmm. public record. Look at the crime rates. How many crimes have been committed by Muslims in Tulsa or in Oklahoma? You know, nobody thinks of that, but the second they see a covered woman, they flip out, or the second they see a guy with a long beard mm-hmm. and a kufi on his, on his head, you know, he must be a terrorist, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was when it really, my passion really mm-hmm. kicked in mm-hmm. to say, you know what, God blessed me with the language and the ability to start speaking and, and correcting the narrative, because we have this rhetoric um, with this 
past election cycle, you know, we had all of this rhetoric that was going Mm -hmm. on with the Muslim travel Mm -hmm. ban and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so for us to be able to set the record straight and say, you know what, look at your statistics. You know, you're running with all this rhetoric. Look at your statistics, please. Mm -hmm. You know, we have Mm -hmm. more domestic terrorism that is happening because of white nationalists. Oh, for sure. Than we do of anybody else. By far. By far. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to look at that. We had a conversation about the KKK. Why is the KKK not listed as a terrorist organization in the United States? Please tell me how they are not a terrorist organization. But when you ask the FBI, they are not a terrorist organization. Al-Qaeda and everybody else is, and which, yes, they belong, they should – but why is the KKK not a terrorist organization? The as Ar- much as they have terrorized others. this nation and they continue to terrorize the mm-hmm. people of this nation, mm-hmm. why are they not a terrorist organization? Please explain that to me. You know, it's just baffling. So that was kind of the catalyst that pushed me into the work that I've been doing. And I've been doing it with the passion to try and build those bridges. While all of that was awful, (laughs) on the one hand, uh, uh, you've turned it – I mean, talk about turning uh, lemons into lemonade or uh, you've really turned it on its head in a way and and become a fierce advocate for – not only for Muslims, but but for for, for, for people – for anybody who needs help. Absolutely. As a person of faith, I mean, each one of our faiths calls for us to help the orphan, the needy, the widow, right? The immigrant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single one of our faiths has that woven into the fabric of our faith. Mm -hmm. We all have that as the golden rule, right? Mm -hmm. Why Mm -hmm. can't we work together to do that? You know, when we're dealing with our immigrant communities, you know, I went to Tornillo twice on two separate occasions. And tell folks what what that is. Tornillo was the... um, the detention center where they're keeping the children, the undocumented children that were mm-hmm. being brought in. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, I was, you know, unfortunately um, had the opportunity to travel there twice on two separate interfaith trips to witness and to do a prayer vigil and, and to try and help out as well. And, and, you know, our homeless here in Tulsa helping them, you know, our underserved communities coming together with people of other faiths and serving Thanksgiving meals, passing out blankets and socks and whatever we can do, whatever we can do to come together and help, you know, when the flood happened, that was during Ramadan for the Muslims. You know, we were fasting. And while we were fasting, we were at houses of worship in different buildings trying to help bring down, take buildings down to the studs to help get all that mess out of their homes and trying to help our fellow neighbors. That's what all of our faiths tell us to do. Mm-hmm. So we need to not just talk about our faith, but actually live our, our faith, faith, right? And that's what it's about, living out our faith, right? I don't want to just say I'm a Muslim. I want to be the example of a Muslim, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I, I would hope that everybody else would do that. Mm-hmm. I love you know, working with my Jewish, my Christian, my pagan, all, my Hindu, my Buddhist, all of my brothers and sisters to be able to make our community better. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Um, you mentioned there are t- about 20,000 Muslims in the, mm-hmm. in the Tulsa area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for a lot of Americans, again, when they think Muslim, they think Arab. Mm-hmm. But I know the mosque here has got, what, 60 or 70 different languages? 70 different language. countries mm-hmm. and five separate Native Americans, tribes, represented within the mosque just in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right? 
And, you know, and aside from the mosque that we have, aside from IST, we have the Islamic um, Society Foundation, which is the Shia congregation, the Iranian okay. Shia congregation. Shia congregation. We okay. have the Turkish Raindrop House right. that is more um, cultural, but a Turkish community. Um, we have the small mosque on TU's campus for the students. And so we have an extremely diverse um, community of Muslims. You know, if you've eaten at an IHOP, if you've eaten at a Belarus, chances are you've rubbed elbows with owners who are Muslims, right? You eat at mm-hmm. Tiamas. All mm-hmm. of these places are mm-hmm. owned by Muslims, mm-hmm. and people don't, you know, know that just by looking at them, right? And so, um, very diverse community, very educated community. Education is key in our faith, and mm-hmm. so we push and strive to make sure that everybody is educated. Quiet community, mm-hmm. you could say, for the mm-hmm. most part, pretty mm-hmm. quiet community, but a very diverse community to where, you know, we, we hear the rhetoric that Shias and, and Sunnis can't get along. In fact, we're best of friends. And and you alluded to Arabs equating to Muslims and Muslims equating to Arabs. Only 23% of the Muslim population around the world are Arabs. And unfortunately, uh, there's instances right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that I can point out to you where Arab Christians or Arab Catholics were attacked, you know, and killed, as we know from the Jabara murder, um, you know, eight months before his mother was ran over by Stanley Vernon Majors. And then, you know, he was released and brought right back into the house next to them as he was screaming filthy Muslims at them. And they're Orthodox. They go to St. Anthony's, Mm -hmm. you know, just because they have a thick Lebanese accent does not make them Muslim. You know, we have St. Therese Church on 81st and 169, a wonderful congregation of Lebanese, Syrians, Iraqis, Libyans. And, you know, if you if I blindfold you and if I take you inside the church, you'd think you'd walk into a mosque because you hear the word Allah over and over again. Mm -hmm. People think that Allah is a different God. No, it's just the Arabic word for God, you know, and the pastor is Lebanese. So their service is in Arabic. You know, and to be able to educate people and tell them, no, not all Arabs are Muslims, to see the light bulbs that go on, you know, when you say that to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of educating, Mm -hmm. there aren't all that many uh, female religious leaders in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. When one thinks of uh, religious leaders within Islam, Mm -hmm. um, one doesn't think of women. Sure. uh, At least. At least I'd say in this country and sure. myself included. Sure. Um, so I'm curious about challenges you may have faced, and I know I know you well enough to know you've turned every challenge into an opportunity. That's right. But That's right. Uh, challenges you face being sure. a female sure. religious Muslim leader sure. in public sure. in this community. So, so within um, the Muslim faith, within the Islamic faith, as far as leaders, when you look at a religious leader, uh, when you talk about an imam. Mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of a pastor or a rabbi, mm-hmm. um, they're all males, right? They are mm-hmm. the ones who lead the prayers, specifically because they are the ones in front who are leading the physical prayer, the five daily prayers that mm-hmm. we have. Because of the physical motions of the prayer, that's why we have a male who is leading the prayer, and that's why imams are males. However, there are tons of scholars who are females, who are sheikhas or fem- uh, female scholars, and uh, Dalia Mujahideen. I mean, I can go on and on and on about. Is it the multiples. feminine of sheikh, by the way? Uh, sheikha, yes, it's the feminine mm-hmm. of sheikh, yes. And so there are tons of scholars who are females. I mean, the the woman that started the first university in Egypt, she, she was a female. You know, this is we're going back. Hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, and so there are a lot of female scholars, 
However, as far as an imam, you would not see a female to be the mm-hmm. one that's leading mm-hmm. um, leading mm-hmm. the prayers. Now, yes, within some communities, it is very challenging, um, especially when you're talking about immigrants who have come from rural areas where they're more used to having males in that leadership role. Yes. But here in Tulsa, I mean, um, my predecessor, Cheryl Siddiqui, who was an American convert, Allison Moore, who was an American mm-hmm. convert, who have done some wonderful, wonderful things in, in our community for the past 30, 40 years. You know, wonderful women who, you know, are, are leaders in our community community and have done some work that nobody would ever have been able to do you know and in our community we joke we say if you want something done you go to the women you know they'll get it done and so we say that <laughs> we amongst say, a lot of the christian oh, yeah. communities too. you know and so <laughs> we were no nonsense we want it done we get it done and so um Yes, there might be a little bit of pushback, but overall, I have wonderful support from the community. Uh, Imam Manchasi, who was our only certified imam in the entire state of Oklahoma, him and I worked together wonderfully. Uh, imam Suhaib Webb, who is a mufti, not just an imam, but a mufti. So he's kind of the equivalent, I guess, of our pope that you would say. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a, only a handful of muftis around the world, mm-hmm. and Imam Suhaib Webb happens to be one of them. Uh, you know, we work wonderfully with all of these leaders mm-hmm. um, across across the country, acro- mm-hmm. you know, across the world, working with all of these leaders. And so, yes, there are challenges, but overall, I choose not to um, listen or be bogged down by those challenges. Uh, tell me I can't do something. Watch how quick I'll get it done. You know, that, that's, that's one of my favorite things. I have no doubt. Yes, yes. I have no doubt. As we close, what would you hope that listeners would understand and appreciate about their Muslim neighbors? I would hope and they would appreciate that we are your neighbors. Forget that label of Muslim. Mm. Just know Mm -hmm. that we are your neighbors. Mm -hmm. We're Tulsans just like you. We have to worry about our kids going to school. We have to worry about paying our bills. We want to make sure you're safe just like we are. So if you're able to put that label aside, yes, that diversity makes us beautiful and special. But if you're worried about us being different – Put that label aside. You know, just have a conversation. Mm. You know, um, anytime you approach a Muslim, <laughs> it doesn't matter who they are. They will feed you and feed you and feed you. <laughs> you know, We're, we will increase your waistline. <laughs> and so I just have a conversation. Just have a cup of coffee. You know, I promise you, the second you put a face to your fear, um, it's a lot harder to hate. It's a lot harder to have those feelings. Um, on multiple occasions, I've you know, been approached with somebody who has been very combative, who was very, you know, vulgar, very upset. And just having a a little bit of conversation, just a little bit of dialogue, turn that around. And so I would just hope that they see us as their neighbors, mm-hmm. as Tulsans, as mm-hmm. community, right? Mm-hmm. That that unity part of that word community, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what we are. We need to come together and unify. So, yes, we're going to have difference of opinions. Even within my own family, we have difference of opinions when it comes to politics, when it comes Mm -hmm. to religion, when it comes to everything. Everybody disagrees. But to be able to do that respectfully and to be able to um, understand at the end of the day we're all humans and we all bleed the same and we need to help one another. Absolutely. Leah Shimmy, it is always a pleasure <laughs> to be with you. you. Thanks so much for coming in today. Such on an honor. Thank you faith so very much. Public, which you do so well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Gary. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Copyright PTS, and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.